Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, folks. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends, and I'm your host, Cal Aras. And today, I'm really delighted to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. His name is Jeff Renner. Jeff is a professional speaker, moderator, and a guide for personal growth. In this episode, Jeff and I talk about a variety of topics, including countering fear, living an adventurous life, and some of the stories he tells is just fascinating. Uh, You definitely want to listen to uh, his uh, sharing of his experience with diving with a killer whale and how did that help him effectively counter fear. He also talks about his invitation to a presidential interview in the White House and how that changed his self-doubt from a dream killer to a dream builder. Jeff is a nine time Emmy Award winner with 40 plus years in television and broadcasting uh, news experience. He's also been a NASA journalist and space candidate, author of six books, and more so he's also a commercial pilot, a scuba diver, sailor, climber, and a skier. Friends, uh, this is a fascinating episode uh, where you get an idea of how to live life uh, as an adventure. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation uh, as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Jeff Renner. So good afternoon, uh, Jeff. Uh, Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. And let me start off by saying uh, how we met. We met at the National Speakers Association event in Mercer Island almost a year ago. And what... uh, fascinated me about you was just your amazing storytelling and after finding out that you've had an excellent broadcasting career and now that you're a full-time professional speaker i know having you on the show and sharing your wisdom with my audience would be a really a treat for uh, them so i really appreciate you taking the time and being on the show so welcome to the show well thank you very much cal i enjoyed spending that uh, time that we did over that period of weeks with you and this sounds like a marvelous show so i'm very pleased to be a part of that Excellent. And uh, one of the ways, uh, Jeff, we kick off our show is by asking our guest a simple yet profound question, and that is, what's your favorite quotation or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? I think there are several that I use, and we might get into those later, but I think probably the most profound one that I try to apply day after day after day Uh, is one by a friend of mine who was a U.S. Geological Survey scientist uh, by the name of Dr. David Johnston. And David died in the Mount St. Helens eruption. And as you know from our time together, that was a seminal event in my life. And when I visited his father afterward, uh, his father, Tom, said to me, you know, Jeff, part of me wishes I'd never encouraged my son's interest in geology and volcano. But he said, I couldn't do that. And he said, David used to say to me frequently, Dad, for me, each day is a new adventure. It's an opportunity to learn something new, to use that knowledge to get better at what I do, and to use that knowledge and that skill to help other people. And I don't, I won't say I remember that every day, but it's something that comes up and it provides, if you will, a foundation for my activities, my goals, and my attempts, my strivings each and every day. 
I really like that and it reminds me of the Helen Keller quote is that life is uh, one daring adventure or nothing at all and yes. uh, it is uh, so uh, poignant that you mentioned that because it is uh, this time of the year when people are making new year's resolutions or uh, getting ready to make those uh, for the upcoming year and one of the things I highly encourage uh, my audience is to take into account adventure as one of the possibilities to live a life that allows you to live fully and uh, fully self-expressed. And uh, so thank you for sharing that, Jeff. And uh, for the benefit of the audience, uh, Jeff uh, Renner is a professional speaker, a moderator, and a guide for personal team growth. Uh, his uh, popular keynote is Transforming Stressors into Confidence, confident performances on cue. So Jeff, what I'm curious about is I want to take a step back into the memory lane. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of years, so it's a pretty long memory lane, Cal. <laughs> All right. So let's start off at the very, very beginning, the genesis of Jeff Renner. So tell me, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? In other words, where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Well, I will be somewhat uh, circumspect in terms of what my parents did and how I came to be, but I think the area that we'd be most interested in talking about here is I was blessed with a very supportive family. Uh, my parents were both very supportive of my sort of inquisitive nature, my desire to learn, my desire to explore. Uh, so were my grandparents. They were very supportive. I grew up in the Midwestern United States in the Great Lakes area. Uh, love to just explore outdoors. And that's something I feel is really lacking today. It's unfortunate that so few children have an opportunity for unstructured playtime uh, and unstructured exploration time to get out and just to know the world around them. And by getting to know that, get a better sense of their own resources and occasionally falling down, uh, scraping a knee, blooding a nose, but uh, learning something. And so I had that opportunity. And I had that opportunity to explore. My, my grandparents were also a major uh, influence. They would take me to museums, aquaria, zoos, things of that sort. My grandfather once famously said, what does this kid have against living? Because I did pick up his hobbies early on. Uh, I love to ski. Uh, I grew up, as I said, in the Great Lakes. You don't have mountains there. But the idea of mountain climbing was very interested. I like to ski fast. Uh, I was fascinated uh, by nature programs. And uh, I think if some of your listeners know the uh, Mutual of Omaha series, Wild Kingdom, you know, and Marlon Perkins would be there, and he, he was sort of the moderator and the host, and he'd say, well, there's a man-eating python out there in the brush. We're going to talk about how you need your own protection against the pythons in your financial lives, but we're going to send Jim up there to go ahead and tease out that python. I didn't want to be Marlon Perkins. I wanted to be Jim. I wanted to be the one that was going in after those pythons, if you will. And then Jacques Cousteau came out with his specials, uh, The Undersea Life of uh, Jacques Cousteau, or The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. And little did I know that from the time I was watching those about eight to ten years later, I'd have the opportunity to interview Jacques Cousteau. Mm. But it fascinated me with scuba diving. And so when I was still in high school, I took scuba diving lessons. And... Uh, then flying had also intrigued me. Uh, I think like any child of the 60s and 70s uh, that grew up with a space program, I'd race home and watch whatever space launch what was going on at that time. And I imagined myself to be an astronaut. Now, at that time, the only route to becoming an astronaut was through the military as a pilot. And that meant 2020 uncorrected vision. I didn't have that. 
but I still had that love of uh, aviation and of flying, and I ended up taking flying lessons and uh, uh, end up getting a commercial pilot's license for land and seaplanes and was a flight instructor and uh, just had wonderful experiences uh, flying in all sorts of conditions and all different parts of the country. That is a really a fantastic story. And then uh, this brings up another question uh, that we normally uh, hear from our audience is, sounds like uh, you found your calling or your passion early on, at least the inclination of the direction that you wanted to take, because partly because of the opportunities that you had in front of you, as well as the remarkable upbringing and the influence of your grandfather, as well as your parents who supported you in exploration. So my question to you is, uh, now, you are a nine-time Emmy Award winner, 40-plus years in television news. Uh, so tell me, what? when was that moment? Was there like a specific moment that you realized for yourself that this is the career, the television broadcasting career is what I'm going to pursue? Or was that just fell into your lap or was there a chance, possibility? And the reason I ask that is a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, would like to know, how do you find your calling? How do you find your passion? So what was that story for you? I think that's a very good question, and I would say there's more than one stories, uh, more than one story that's a part of that. Very often you'll hear people say, I know from day one I wanted to do this, and I moved down that path. I didn't let anything else distract me, and I headed in that direction. I think a few people get that, and I would have definitely say that once I had a sense that I was blessed with certain abilities, that I had certain interests, I did head down a path. But there are other things that come along. Uh, I had a high school teacher that said, have you ever heard yourself speak? And I'm blessed with a good speaking voice. And I said, no. And she said, well, let me get a tape recorder out. And so she got this tape recorder out. And suddenly I understood why I'd get in trouble in the library. Because, you know, usual, not obnoxious, but mischievous high school guys, we'd be telling jokes and that sort of thing. And I couldn't understand why the librarian would never show up when my friends were telling a story. But he would when I did. And it was because my voice would carry. And so suddenly that began to tell me I'd been blessed with a certain tool that might be worthwhile exploring. And then the fact that I liked storytelling, I liked adventure, I liked exploration, I loved science, uh, began to direct my path initially into uh, reporting uh, with television. But then also, because of my aviation background, I was asked to basically consider going into meteorology. And so I did. I went back to the University of Washington. My first degree was in uh, television journalism and also political science, but I really had that love of science. And so then I went back to college uh, at the University of Washington, got another degree, this time in atmospheric sciences, and then focused more and more on science journalism as well as being uh, a day-to-day weather forecaster. So I would say I always tell young people or anybody that's searching for the path, get an idea of what it is that moves you, what makes you feel really alive, what makes you feel as though you can make a difference in other people's lives, but be aware and be alert to what might seem to be those chance opportunities, those chance meetings that might tend to refine your search and even direct you in a slightly different direction. 
That is uh, nicely uh, said and nicely put. So, Jeff, that brings up another question, and that is, uh, and as you know, most of our listeners also are professional speakers or aspiring speakers. And one of the, oh, I've got a tough audience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely, and one of the traits that I've noticed, Jeff, that you do uh, really well, remarkably well, is storytelling, and obviously uh, that has its roots in television broadcasting. So. What I want to ask you is, uh, how has the influence of broadcasting and television uh, helped you in your professional speaking career? What specific traits uh, that you've learned uh, over, uh, you know, over the last 40 years in broadcasting that you find really useful and helpful that some of our speakers can uh, gain some uh, wisdom from it? Anything that you want to share? I would say a couple of things there, Kel. I would say, number one, when you start out in radio, they hear your voice, you have to paint a word picture for them that allows that listener that's on the other end of a radio broadcast to place themselves in a given situation. So that was element number one. Element number two is when you do television, you learn you don't write and then get some pictures. You write to the video. You write to the interview segments, what we call the sound bites or the interview segments. And it's that complementary melding of the video and the sound and the story that you do that allows you to end up painting a story through that visual medium. And I think that's something I'm still learning. I don't think we ever stop learning that. Uh, there's the third element, and that is it's one thing to use the medium of television. It's another for radio. But when you're on the platform, when you're speaking to people, you need to relate to your audience and they are giving you cues all the time. You learn something about the group. And I, I'll tell you a quick story about that. I had not done much speaking, but as a meteorologist, as a science reporter, as somebody that had done some uh, very fascinating, uh, had covered some very fascinating stories, I would end up getting called to go out to different schools and other groups. Well, I did not have a lot of uh, experience working with very young children and in general, I would say second, third, fourth grade on up. Well, somehow I got scheduled to talk to a group of kindergarten students. And uh, I said, okay, uh, Mr. Renner is going to talk about some elements here, and we're going to do some experiments. And if you have some questions, raise your hand, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Well, I had not started, Cal, and this hand went up of this very young boy, I'm guessing kindergarten. And I said, now, we're going to get to those in just a second, but please be patient. We've got another experiment we're going to do. You're going to really find this interesting, and we'll get to your question in just a second. Hand went up again in like 15 seconds, and I thought, what are you going to do here? And I sort of looked at the teacher, and the teacher it was sort of like their time away from the classroom, and they were talking to another teacher. And I said, you know, we're going to get to your question in just a second. So I went on to the experiment, came back, and I looked for the little boy, and I didn't see him. And I said, well, what happened to that little fellow that had a question? And the teacher looked at me with a disgusted look on her face, and she said, he didn't have a question to ask you. He needed to go to the restroom. And that taught me, Cal, from that moment on, be very sensitive to what your audience is trying to tell you. Mm, I really like that. That's a, <laughs> that's a beautiful point, absolutely, because it's sometimes, uh, you know, the way uh, we've been coached at NSA or, uh, you know, even with an organization like Toastmasters, there are different levels to speaking. And, you know, the level one of speaking is you're just trying to uh, get comfortable on stage. Level two is you're trying to be flamboyant and you're trying to focus on your message. But the really uh, the great speakers are 
willing to improvise and tune into the audience and understand what would make the greatest impact. And that takes some uh, really uh, zoning in and uh, being in. Uh, sensitive to what the audience is so i think that's uh, that really uh, you highlight that point very well there so- i would add something else if i could there cal and that is it's important to cue in on your audience but don't misread uh their intents i've had cases where somebody was looking at me i was doing a presentation and they had a really sour look on their face and i thought boy they definitely aren't enjoying what i'm talking about and you know you develop enough time on the platform or on the stage or on television and you just sort of learn to move through that and this person same sour look on their face it looked like they'd been you know sucking a grocery store or produce department's worth of lemons and comes walking up to me and i thought oh boy what's this going to be about and he stopped he held out his hand and he wanted to shake my hand he said that's the most interesting presentation i've ever heard and I think I could have practically dropped uh, to the floor. I was so surprised by that. But sometimes people have different ways of expressing themselves and showing their enjoyment or lack thereof. And so it's uh, don't be too certain that you know exactly what's going on in their head and don't lose your confidence in that moment. Just continue uh, persevering. Very good point. Yes, it uh, doesn't always uh, pay to be uh, making assumptions. Uh, that's certainly uh, uh, a very good point that you mentioned. So here's another question that comes to mind, uh, Jeff. When you look back at your life up until now, mm-hmm. you know, we've all had uh, career uh, success moments and, you know, the moments where life was, uh, it was a life-defining moment in the sense that it was never the same, life was never the same again moment. So was there like a specific breakthrough success moment or a strategic inflection point in your career or your life that totally turned the trajectory of your career? I would say a couple. Uh, And I think probably the key one, the really defining one, was I was a young science reporter at King Television, that's the NBC affiliate in Seattle, And it was my area of expertise and my focus uh, to cover science and medical stories. And I had only been working in Seattle. And keep in mind, I had gone through college the first time, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And Wisconsin has some nice hills, but they're small. I suddenly was out here in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the early things the uh, assignment editor came up to me and said is I'm going to send you and one of the photographers on staff down to Mount Rainier. Keep in in mind, Mount Rainier is a very large volcano, 14,400, and I think 11 feet if I've got the measurement correct. And we want you to take a mountain climbing class. And, okay, you know, you're a young reporter. You do what they ask you to do, and it sounded like interesting. I'd always dreamed of climbing a mountain before. Well, the reason they wanted me to do that was that at that time they believed Mount Baker Uh, Another volcano, a little bit uh, under 11,000 feet up near the U.S.-Canadian border, was getting ready to erupt. And they had developed an arrangement with the U.S. Geological Survey to share a helicopter, fly part of the way up, have us offload equipment and basically stick it in backpacks, get it up over the rim of the crater and then down into the crater itself to shoot video as these geologists and seismologists did various tests. And so I took that climbing class. We went up to Mount Baker. I made some good friends from University of Washington, uh, Department of uh, Geophysics, the U.S. Geological Survey. One I quoted, Dr. David Johnston, and we thought that was going to be the first volcano that would erupt. That was in 1978, I believe October. Uh, 
1979, a paper came out from two U.S. geological survey scientists that said, you know, we think St. Helens, Mount St. Helens, volcano in southwest Washington state, is actually going to be the first volcano to erupt. And so we went down, we did some stories on that. Lo and behold, March of 1980, uh, there began to be some activity. And in fact, there was a small explosion, what we call a phreatic or steam explosion, as some magma that was rising within the volcano, uh, basically flash heated and vaporized some water, some ice, and shot it out. We flew down there. For the next two months, I was either back and forth via helicopter, via car. We were camping out there up to two weeks at a time, sometimes in the backseat of a car, sometimes in a camper. And uh, it was my job through that period and then during the eruption and in the aftermath uh, as well to cover that. And that ended up being a profound opportunity for me to showcase what I could bring to a story, what I could do in terms of storytelling, in terms of reacting under periods of, uh, I think it's fair to say, extreme risk. And uh, that really launched my opportunities and opened a lot of opportunities that I never would have had otherwise. Oh, wow. And you said there was another uh, incident, another story that you wanted to share as well? Or was that the one? I would say uh, probably the other opportunity was, uh, as I mentioned, I scuba dive. And we had an opportunity to do uh, what was the first underwater special documenting the marine life of Puget Sound. Mm. And again, that was an opportunity that uh, that, together with the Mount St. Helens work, uh, they said, we'd like to get you on air more. Uh, you're a pilot. Uh, would you consider at least being a backup uh, meteorologist? I went back to the University of Washington. And together with uh, the opportunity and just plain hard work uh, of mastering the mathematics, the physics, and then certainly the atmospheric sciences, that just opened up opportunities uh, to do things, to meet people, to go places that uh, I never would have had otherwise. No, that is a really uh, inspiring and amazing story there, uh, Jeff. And I think uh, what I'm taking away from this is that there are moments in our lives and, uh, you know, it's up to us how we create an empowering context based on the circumstances and situations that we encounter. Sometimes those, those could be difficult and uh demoralizing but the, the really the challenges that we encounter really uh, shapes our character and it seems like some of these early uh, encounters in your career helped you uh, build a remarkable uh, you know career in your broadcasting and uh, television career there so the next question that uh, comes to mind uh, Jeff is uh, uh, you know there is a story somewhere in there where you mentioned about uh, driving with a killer whale and that <laughs> helped you <laughs> effectively counter fear. And that's really what I thought it was, you were going to share with the second story. But uh, let's start, let's hear that one. Well, that was, I didn't want to anticipate too much there, Cal. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was part of that special we did. And when you think of Puget Sound, when you think of the Pacific Northwest, you think of killer whales, orcas. And at that time, keep in mind that was the late 1970s, killer whales were viewed as just that, killers of whales, and it was believed that they probably would not distinguish much between uh, salmon, between seals, and human beings. And scientists uh, that had studied their behavior, in fact, knew that that was not the case. But how to prove that? And so essentially what we decided to do was, I basically said to one of the scientists, uh, what would happen if I jumped in the water? Because we had shot some video of them out in the wild. And uh, I said, what would happen if we jumped in the water? He said, they'd take off. 
they are interested in us, but they don't necessarily trust us because they have suffered a great deal, as will become clear in just a few minutes. And so I wasn't about to give up on that idea quite that much. And so I talked to one uh, veterinarian that specialized in rescuing marine mammals, and I said, is there anything we can do? And uh, he said, you know, there's a rescued orca up in Victoria, Victoria being a city up in uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And uh, he said, maybe they'd be willing to let you get on the water there. And so it worked out. I'm standing on the edge of the pool. I've got my fins. I'm wearing full scuba. And I said to the trainer, how does this orca named Miracle, and we'll explain that name in a moment, how does this orca named Miracle react to somebody when they get on the water on scuba? He said, I don't know. And I looked at him. I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, we get in and we snorkel, but nobody's actually gone underwater with them before. He said, I'm sure you'll be fine. And I thought, well, this is terribly, uh, uh, you know, giving rise to a lot of optimism. And as I was standing there, my fins are projecting out over the water. And this orca named Miracle, who is an adolescent but still roughly 2,000 pounds, about 13 to 14 feet in length, comes up out of the water, does a maneuver that they call spy hop. Basically, their head stick out of the water and opens her mouth, fastens it around the end of my fin. And you can see her tongue working back and forth and then sort of slides back into the water and looks at me. And I thought, what the heck is this? Is this some sort of taste test? And uh, But I wasn't about to give up at that point. So I ended up plunging into the water. And it's sort of like Jaws. If you think seeing that movie, the scariest moments are not when you actually see the shark. It's when you know it's probably out there someplace, but you don't know where it is or what it's going to do. And that's when they cue in the music. And so I'm in the water. The visibility in the Pacific Northwest waters is not terribly good for people that have dived, for example, in the tropics. And it's, you know, 50, 100 feet. Here, a good day of visibility is maybe 15 to 20 feet. And it's like, okay, where is she? What's she thinking? What's she going to do? And all of a sudden, she emerges, looks at me. And then sort of rolls, well, first of all, she headbutts me. And I've got news for you, Cal. When you're, I was about 160 pounds there. I'm a bit above that now, as you know, but uh, not terribly so. But when you're, say, a 160-pound diver and a 2,000-pound orca headbutts you, the orca doesn't go anywhere. You go spinning tush over tea kettle, as we like to say. And uh, so after that point... Uh, this went on a couple times, and then she suddenly disappears and reappears, rolls on her back, opens her jaw, and aims straight for my belly. And all I can think of are these nature films that I've watched. That's how they disembowel a seal. And next thing I knew, you know, it wasn't I wasn't being liberated of a few pounds of belly fat, but she had gripped excess weight belt and was shaking me like a yo-yo. And I thought, okay, I really want to get out of the water. You know, my my courage, my confidence has largely departed. But I remembered something the trainer said. And he said, she likes to play. She's a big baby. Just push her back. And so when she finally let go, she swam off, came back. I reached out my hand, and I pushed on her head. And she liked that very much. We played this game of sort of push uh, and pull a little bit. And then she swam up. She turned 90 degrees to me and was eyeing me. And I thought, what exactly does she want? And she stayed there and I eventually reached out a hand, slid it around her one pectoral fin, and she slowly began to swim off around her enclosure. And if she felt I was losing my grip, she'd slow up. 
And uh, it was like somebody that invites you into your home, into their home, that they're trying to show you around. And I realized she was consciously being gentle. And what really brought that home, Kel, is I eventually ran low on air, had to come out. We'd gotten the film that we needed to get. And she came over to the edge of the pool, and I had my legs hanging down into the pool. And she laid her chin on my knee. Now, keep in mind, this is a 2,000-pound orca. Her head probably weighed three to 400 pounds. Mm. If she had just laid it down full strength, I would have probably needed crutches to crawl out of there. But she was consciously being gentle. I felt pressure. But that was it. And there was this gaze. It was not a stare. It was not a look. It was a gaze that connected us. Just as that laying of the chin on her knee, on my knee, closed the physical distance to zero, that gaze closed the, if you will, the emotional, the psychological distance to zero. And that changed my view of how we relate our responsibility with the rest of creation, the animal kingdom, whatever you want. Now, I said before I close off on that story, I would explain why her name was Miracle. Uh, We began to wonder at the very outset, did Miracle mean it would be a miracle if I got out of the tank in one piece? Hmm. That was not it. She had been found, uh, I think about a year, year and a half before, in a small bay not far from the city of Victoria, uh, suffering rampant infection, uh, severe malnutrition, and several gunshot wounds. And at that time, fishermen tended to view them as a rival for salmon, and somebody had shot her, and she was near death. But the vets and the marine biologists weren't willing to give up on her. And they said, you know, we're going to see if we can't stabilize her condition. They did. And it got to the point where they said she needs bigger space. She was in a hotel swimming pool, mind you. They moved her to the sea land of the Pacific, no longer uh, in operation. And that's where I ended up encountering Miracle. And that's where that name came from. It was a miracle that she had survived. And I like to think that if anyone, if any creature could have had reason to be fearful of humans, to be angry at humans, to want to show aggression to them, it would have been Miracle. And that taught me something about how we handle fear as well as that dive and also how we handle anger. And that was a lesson that stayed with me. And as you know from seeing some of the talks that I've done, that uh, provides one of the stories that I use as a jumping off point for stratagems for dealing with those issues. Now, that is uh, really a fascinating and inspirational story right there, Jeff. And one of the things that comes to mind here for me is it's the communication and intimacy with different species on this planet Earth. And and of course, there are lessons encountering fear here as far as, uh, you know, this entire story is concerned. And I want to get into it a little bit more, uh, do a deep dive into it. But, you know, the other point that also uh, comes to mind is this uh, a statement or a quotation by Paulo Coelho, the author of uh, the book Alchemist. Yes. yes. You know, he, uh, he, he, had, he has this beautiful quote, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it goes something like this, that if you do not fear the unknown, the unknown will be kind to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like uh, you were willing to stick around and not give up and uh, eventually, uh, you know, you broke through and uh, conquered not only your fear, but you set an example for all of us who are listening to the story that there are opportunities in our lives, in our own circumstances, that sometimes it may appear to be challenging. It may be ap- appearing to be uh, uh, demoralizing or disappointing or paralyzing, but just to st- 
stick it on, never quit, and just continue with her uh, with her focus intact. And sometimes she can uh, really cause a miracle in our lives. So what were some of the lessons as far as uh, you would say that people can take away or learn from this incident that you've learned about countering fear? I think one of the elements is to look at fear or anger as an onion. Uh, it has numerous layers, and as we know, if you don't handle an onion well, I like to cook, uh, it ends up generating tears in you or in other people. And the same is definitely true of fear and anger. And so just as we know there are layers to an onion that you have to remove, there are layers to an event, an incident, an encounter that generates fear or anger, that if we examine those, they allow us to deal with that, and that gives us many more opportunities that we otherwise would not have. And I think the first one is to recognize what we're feeling. Too often, we feel that initial rush of adrenaline or uh, hormones racing through our body uh, through a stressful situation, and we tend to react. And that reaction is usually not very skillful when we do that initially. So first is to name what you're feeling. There's great power in being able to name something. And the key here is not to say, I am afraid, I am angry. You know, we're human beings. We have thoughts, we have emotions, but we are not our thoughts and emotions. We have them, but we must not let them have us. And so the first is to name what that is so you can recognize what you're dealing with. The next layer that I view is to say, what am I afraid of? What am I angry about? And identify what that is. Then go ahead to the next layer, and that is, what is the bigger story behind that? Does this fit in with other experiences of my lives, of my life that's making me expand this, uh, blow it up bigger than it really is? And then look at the person or the institution, the organization, the incident that is generating this. Why are they behaving the way they are? I had an incident one time when I was flying uh, across the Cascades here. My oxygen failed. There are a series of sequences you go through to try to get assistance. And the air traffic controller was not being helpful. In fact, very contrary to that. I thought, this is really unusual. But I stopped to think of, okay, why might he be behaving the way he is? Could have had a bad encounter with a significant other, a colleague, another pilot that was on the radio frequency. And it allowed me to handle that in a much more dispassionate, skillful way that allowed us to settle this problem and for me to be able to continue my flight safely. So I think the next one is to ask, why is this person or whoever is implicated in that behaving the way they are? And then once you've gone through those steps, number one, you're forcing yourself to think, not just to react. And then you can ask, what is the wise choice? What is the skillful choice for responding to either this fear or this anger? And going through that process, and it doesn't take very long, it paid dividends for me both in terms of that dive with Miracle, the Orca, uh, it's worked in aviation, and it worked for me down on Mount St. Helens when we were dealing with an erupting volcano. Uh, it's, uh, that's really awesome, and a lot of good nuggets of wisdom there. So uh, that brings up another question for me, uh, Jeff, is uh, when you look back at your life, uh, who are your mentors growing up? Uh, anybody that you looked up to that you wanted to emulate? Uh, and who fascinates you? Who inspires you today in your uh, profession, and why? Well, I would say there were a couple of people whose names might not necessarily uh, mean a lot, but there was a uh, uh, television journalist named Jim Cummins uh, that I uh, admired greatly. 
Uh, he was just a wonderful journalist, uh, had a way of digging in and getting the details, making sure he looked at things fairly from all angles. Uh, there have been several meteorologists. One uh, was well-known out in the Washington, D.C. area by the name of Bob Ryan, uh, who's an outstanding scientist and also had a very a real aptitude for portraying that on television. And I think others that I uh, have been fortunate enough to meet, uh, I mentioned Jacques Cousteau. Uh, there have been several National Geographic explorers that I've had an opportunity to meet, uh, a couple of astronauts, uh, one of them, uh, George Pinky Nelson from right here in Washington State. And to see the way that they approached the world around them, the way that they viewed it as uh, being full of promise, and as their own abilities were basically a foundation to expand possibilities and experiences uh, for other people and to help other people. And of course, I mentioned one right at the very outset, and that's Dr. David Johnston, my friend that was the U.S. Geological Survey scientist uh, who perished in the eruption of Mount St. Helens. No, that's great. Uh and this is uh, this is a perfect segue into uh, the other uh, section of our podcast interview here is uh, what are some of the favorite places to travel uh, and uh, what about this place that you value so much? Anything that particularly comes to mind based on your uh, career travels and broadcasting career? I would say there have been very few places that I've traveled that I haven't found something of worth. But I'd say my absolute favorites, as people might suspect, would be scuba diving. Uh, I've enjoyed diving in the Caribbean, uh, off Honduras, uh, Cayman Island, uh, out in the Pacific, Micronesia, even up in Alaska. Uh, and But one of the places, and a lot of scuba divers tend to say, okay, it's not quite as spectacular as the Caribbean, but that's the Hawaiian Islands. And I was down, uh, two dives come to mind in the Hawaiian Islands. One was I was diving uh, off Molokini which is a semi-submerged volcano that's gradually eroded over time. And I heard this sound, and it wasn't just the depth of the sound, but it seemed to not only be something I just heard, but I felt. And all of a sudden I realized there were humpback whales somewhere out there communicating to each other, and that's what I was feeling, and that's what I was hearing. And again, there was that sense of connection. The other one was off uh, Molokai. And uh, we were going down to about 80 feet uh, to look for hammerhead sharks. And I find sharks very interesting creatures. Uh, they are not, as a lot of people tend to think they are, you know, bloodthirsty, just waiting for an opportunity to attack humans. They're curious, and unfortunately, in some cases, they get to know things by uh, tasting them. And, of course, they have lots of sharp teeth, so that can make a taste a little bit more hazardous. But... Uh, that was just a fascinating experience, seeing these otherworldly shaped creatures, the hammerhead sharks, and sharing the water with them and seeing them regard you and you regard them. So that was definitely one place. And I'd say if I look at the other places that have really been very special to me, uh, my wife and I went with some friends to the Swiss Alps, and we went to an area called Lauterbrunnen Valley. And they have the Eiger, the Monk, and the Jungfrau. Uh, are three of the major peaks there. And just this combination of this wild landscape, the glaciers, the waterfalls, the farmlands, the uh, cows that we could hear outside of the little hotel we stayed at, the little Swiss cowbells, just was magic. And it was like each day was, where are we going to hike today? How are we going to drink in more of this mountain scenery? And those were just very, very special places to me. Oh, that's great. And you've captured most of your experiences and your uh 
from your travel, from your career into books, because you're an author of six books. Is that correct? I am. Now, those are, at this point, I'm looking to do one sort of on this issue of transforming stress. But the other books uh, really have dealt with uh, people that are enjoying pursuing outdoor uh, skiing, climbing, uh, sailing, scuba diving, and learning how to... uh, go ahead and assess weather so that they can have safe uh, experiences in the outdoors. That's what I've done thus far, but it's like, okay, I've dealt with that. That resource is out there, so now I'm beginning to look at uh, a little different approach in applying some of those experiences. No, that's great. And uh, I'm curious about uh, one particular uh, question for you, Jeff, from uh, from my own personal interest, is that at this point in your career, in your life, after having experienced the ebb and flow of life, if you will, what is your definition of a successful life or a good life? I think a successful life is of taking the good and the bad and making more of it. And I think also it's taking those opportunities to interact with other people. There's a saying and an approach to life, and I think it's uh, an African word that uh, is Ubuntu, and it's people become people only through other people. And that is we develop the potential that we have as human beings in this lifetime only to the degree that we interact with other people, we help other people, and we are willing to learn from other people. And so I think that's one of those key foundational elements to my life that I've uh, encountered and has had value for me. Uh, It's really great, and I like the aspect of contribution uh, because that's really the source of fulfillment. Uh, So uh, the other hypothetical question here for Jeff, for you, is that if you could go back in time and uh, let's say you talk to your young self in your early uh, 20s, what advice would you give him? I'd say have more of a sense of humor and don't sweat what seems to be big stuff. Yeah, I like yes. that. That's great. Now, before we jump on and segue into our next section here, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your invitation to a presidential interview at the White House Rose Garden. So tell us about that experience. What was it like and what did you learn from it? Well, that was a surprise to me, Cal. Uh, I was in my office. I was getting ready, actually, to go out and do a broadcast, what we call a remote broadcast. And I love to do those because a studio is a very controlled environment. When you're out uh, in public doing a live broadcast, there are a lot of imponderables. There are a lot of things you simply can't control. And yet I sort of found that fulfilling and enjoyable. And I was rushing to get ready to go out. My telephone rang and I picked up the phone and the voice at the other end said, is this Mr. Jeff Renner? And I said, yes, it is. And the voice on the other end gave a name and said, "Uh, I'm calling from the White House. We'd like to invite you out here to do an interview with the president. And now I pull a lot of practical jokes on friends. And I thought for sure this was one of my friends that was trying to have me on, if you will. And so I'm sort of, I said, really? And so this person goes on describing all this, how they want me to fly out the next Monday. This was a Friday that I took the call and uh, that I'd be talking to some presidential advisors. As a meteorologist, I was being invited to talk to some people about the latest uh, report on climate change in the United States that had been prepared by a number of federal agencies and university researchers, and then meet for a one-on-one interview with the president of the Rose Garden. And... All of a sudden, the person stopped, and he said, you think this is a joke, don't you? And I said, well, I I don't mean to be impolite, but, you know, the possibility occurred to me that it might be a friend that's pulling my leg. 
And he said, you know, we get that reaction a lot. But he said, this is not a joke. He said, this is a genuine invitation. He said, I need to know, though, within about an hour, if you're going to accept this invitation so we can go through the process of uh, formalizing this. So I ran down, talked to the head of our news operation. He said, of course you're going. So uh, I went out. The really funny part is we were going through a fairly major remodel in my house. And my wife was back visiting her sister, and I called her up, and I said, uh, I'm going to have to leave. I'm flying out to Washington, D.C. on Monday. And, of course, that meant nobody would be there to supervise the contractors and that sort of thing. And she said, well, why? And I had been told not to tell anyone at this point outside of my immediate employer. And I said, I can't tell you. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't quite so sure about that response. But she said, all right. She said, let me know as soon as you can. And so I did. Well, then Monday I was on plane flying out there. And needless to say, you want to be at the top of your professional game, if you will, when you're being called on to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with the President of the United States. In this case, it was President Barack Obama. Hmm. And so we tend to talk ourselves out of a lot of things. Uh, we tend to self-deprecate. We tend to limit what we do. And I've had the sort of development of a model that I use, and I basically call it RSVP. Uh, RSVP to an opportunity. The first is to research. I tried to research everything about that topic that might make sense to ask the president, researched how he tended to respond on one-on-one -on -one interviews, respond what or research what the setting would be like so I'd at least have a feel of that situation. Then the next one is to segment it, basically break it down into little steps that you can deal with one at a time. The next one is to visualize and I would play over in my mind how I'd approach this interview, how I'd phrase a question, how I might respond to a given response by the president, and then simply to practice. And by the time that occasion arose, and I'd finished doing various other uh, meetings and interviews in the executive office building, and literally on the White House grounds, we were waiting in a room called the Palm Room. And oddly enough, Cal, there are no palms in the Palm Room. But then one of the assistants, the aides, came up to me and said, you know, Mr. Renner, the president is waiting to speak to you in the Rose Garden, and I'm not going to be dishonest. My heart did a pitter-patter at that moment, and I thought, okay, uh, dear God, please help me uh, do a credible job on this. Walked out, and I'm used to working in studio settings, but we had... Uh, two cameras, two camera operators, a floor director, several audio technicians, lighting technicians, secret service people, each one of who is probably about as big as a Seahawks linebacker. Mm -hmm. And you walk out, and then, of course, there's President Obama as well. And uh, I just swallowed. And all that work, that RSVP practice, paid off. And although I felt just a tingle of nerves, when the first introduction was made, we got into that interview, and it was as good an interview as I've ever done. And part of it was the president was very gracious uh, and very open, did not ask for any questions in advance, just responded to them as we went along. And it was an amazing experience. But again, it was don't sell yourself short. You have resources that you can't fully appreciate, and all it takes is approaching an opportunity like that with some skill seeking help from others that may have been there and you'll be you'll surprise yourself at what you can do i love that story it's such an inspiring and uplifting story about the possibilities of what can be accomplished when you're open to opportunities and i like the 
like the formula that you shared with us here, RSVP for opportunities, research it, segment it, visualize it, and then practice it. And then you have a really a groundbreaking formula for achieving your dreams. Uh, and uh, switching gears here, Jeff, uh, I want to get into our next section. And these are some of the questions we have received from our audience. And I'll try to get to as many as we can, given uh, the time constraint we have here. But the first question that comes to mind is... Uh, here, what stops people from achieving their full potential? And you speak about transforming stressors into confident performances on cue. So if you had to give three tips in that particular area, what would that be? Well, I found, you know, we talked about Mount St. Helens, and I was literally, I had been covering the mountain that day. We had seen unspeakable violence and transformation of the landscape. I was just getting ready to go on and do a broadcast, and the uh, engineer that I had working with me handed me a small slip of paper and very quietly said, this is seconds before I went on, Jeff, this is the latest estimate of the number of missing and presumed dead. And then at a whisper, before he turned away, he said, I'm told we're going to know some of the victims. Mm-hmm. And about that time, there was the countdown. I got a, okay, we're in commercial break. The anchors are going to read over video and you'll be on next. And then there was a countdown, standby, five, four. And it was like, dozens of people dead and then three two and it was who do i know that's on that list and my body just reacted but there was this go and i had to perform and i had to tell the story of what we saw put it in context and so basically i learned that there are you know several steps that really help number one again just admit that you're feeling stressed if you pretend no i'm not feeling stressed your body's going to tell you otherwise And it's going to be like a child tugging at your leg. The more you ignore it, the more they're going to tug. I think when I was a flight instructor, I would tell students, if you're encountering turbulence and stress is, if you will, psychological turbulence, slow the airplane down. We need to slow down. And the method that I found is most useful is through breathing, slow, even rhythmic breathing. Body expresses stress. It can also counter it. And that process of as you breathe in, tensing a different group of muscles, holding it and releasing it is very useful. And then psychologists that I've talked to say we both need to change our point of focus in a stressful situation and expand our perspective. And so what I'll typically tend to do is on each in-breath, look at something different, maybe something on the ground, something on the wall. If you have a favorite image on your screensaver, on your smartphone, look at that. Because it begins to realize that your entire world is not taken up by this stressor. And then the last thing is using another uh, tactile sense or another sense, and that is I often use hearing. Uh, I'll just listen to ambient noise on an in-breath. I'll listen to the sound of my more rhythmic breathing. Uh, I'll maybe hum a quiet song to myself, and I'm not a very good singer, but uh, I'll do that quietly. And these are all steps you can do quietly. I've done those just before a broadcast underwater scuba diving on top of a mountain and they have proven very effective to me and i think over and above that i was talking about peeling the onion exercise uh, it's been shown that that can counter stress hormones especially a regular practice they've done uh, tests with people that were shown to have hair triggers for tempers and getting them to do some exercise really lowered their reactivity and then of course there's the power of humor and uh being able to laugh at yourself, being able to find something funny about a situation, 
Uh, I'm a big fan of Gary Larson, the Far Side cartoon. I was devastated when he stopped doing those. But when I was about to turn into scuba sushi, all I could do is imagine this cartoon orca, a cartoon diver, the teeth of the orca fastened around the leg of the diver and saying to himself, hmm, sort of gummy on the outside, but hopefully chewy and tasty on the inside. And those moments of humor or something like that can help you break uh, that bodily reaction, that mental reaction to stress. Mm, that's uh, really awesome. And uh, the other question I have for you here is, uh, what is the biggest lesson or insight or pearl of wisdom you've learned about life that you would like to share with our audience? In other words, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? I would say to not try to always control things, but to trust life is going to have lessons. Some of them are going to hurt, but ultimately in that hurt, ultimately in those failures, there's going to be an opportunity to transcend yourself and to transcend the situation. And so I think part of it comes down to trust, and that can be very hard. A lot of us have had some very trying, some very painful experiences, and it's difficult to have that. But I think that basic trust in life and... Uh, to recognize that life is always offering more than that immediate situation that presents itself in front of you. I think another one, you were asking about favorite sayings. Uh, the general manager of our station, our television station, uh, who's no longer alive, a man by the name of Ansel Payne, had a favorite saying, and that was, never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty, but mm. the pig likes it. And <laughs> that's, you know, we tend to react. We want to give like for like, but it's... Uh, Ansel, with that saying, reminded me, you know, there are times that you just let the pig be the pig and you walk away from the sty. And uh, I think that's been useful for me to remember, too, from time to time. I wish I could say I always applied that. I don't always, but more often than not, I do. That's, no, that's a really uh, important uh, point and a good reminder for all of us there. And uh, this comes from, obviously, from one of our speaker audience. And uh, the question is, what is the best book you've read or favorite workshop or seminar you recommend in order to become a better speaker? You know, I've, uh, I would say the NSA, number one, I would be an unapologetic promoter of the National Speakers Association. You hear how generous people are supposedly going to be in sharing their experiences, their guidance. They are. They are. It's marvelous. It's a wonderful learning experience. I would say go to the winter workshop, the summer uh, workshop, go through the program you and I did. That's wonderful. But I also think part of it is to become a deeper human being. Uh, some of the practices that I do, uh, in fact, in a couple of weeks, my wife and I are going to a uh, several-day retreat at a monastery. And I think as you develop your spiritual life, who you are, uh, I think that helps you grow as a person, and it also helps develop what you can offer in turn to other people. No, it is, uh, I absolutely concur with you on that as far as NSA is concerned. And, you know, it is really an amazing organization with really giving and generous uh, people that are just go out of their way to help others level up, as our current president, yeah. uh, Lisa Hayes, says. <laughs> so, uh, and that's, uh, that brings to another question. Uh, you mentioned about having... Uh, personal uh, rituals so what are some of your daily morning and e evening rituals or that help you perform at your peak uh, anything you would like to share uh i would say number one when i get up uh, i have a uh, not as regular a practice of yoga as i'd like but i have like a five to ten minute routine i do in the morning to loosen up uh 
I do, uh, I set time aside for some meditation. I found that a very useful tool in terms of helping me deal with stressors more effectively and, again, evolve into a better person. And then exercise is a key. Uh, in fact, just before we did this, I was out for a cycling test. And we are both members of an NSA chapter where a uh, former Tour de France uh, female rider is a member. Yes. And I can never ride at Moe's level. But I like to go out and push myself up hills and speed and that sort of thing. And I find exercise just really helps me not only remain fit and healthy, uh, but also just remain happier. And then part of that is to be well-read. Uh, I still have a very inquisitive mind and in, an insatiable desire to read. My parents used to get upset with me because they'd buy a book, and two hours later I'd have been through the thing. And it was, <laughs> we just got you that. And my wife will say, well, we need to clear some of these books out of here. What do you need all of these for? And it's there are all ways of learning about this fascinating world and the fascinating potential that is out there for each and every one of us. No, that's, uh, that's great. And then the person that Jeff just mentioned about the champion of, uh, and, you know, athlete and uh, cyclist and Tour de France, uh, who's been on the show, Maureen Manley. Oh, and, and she, uh, you can, uh, you can listen to the podcast episode of season seven, I believe. And, uh, so, uh, you can check out the, yeah, podcast episodes. Uh, Maureen Manley is on there and uh, she has a remarkable story as well. Uh, talking about books, Jeff, uh, what books would you recommend? Anything that uh, that has left a tremendous influence on you? I know it's a pretty broad question, but anything that comes to mind that you would like to recommend for our audience as far as books are concerned? Boy, it's so it's so dependent in terms of people's fields. But I think uh, you know certainly I'm I've had the strong affinity for the outdoors and for exploration. Uh, one that I enjoyed was The Worst Journey in the World by Jerry Apsley Gerard. And he was on the unsuccessful Scott uh, expedition. And uh, just the way that they dealt with things, Endurance by Ernest Shackleton, who was also an Antarctic explorer, uh, I found that you really get into the core of the human experience and how they respond when things are going bad. Um, some of the Everest climbers. And then certainly I enjoyed some of the Jacques Cousteau specials. Being a pilot, and a for a while a commercial pilot and flight instructor there's a writer uh that wrote the little prince and uh that's antoine and i'm probably going to get the pronunciation wrong but antoine de saint-exupery and then also within the united states ernest gan and they didn't write just about flying they talked about the things that went wrong in their experiences, how they drew on a deeper part of themselves to respond to those. And those are some of, I think, the ones that would be most generally applicable. Uh, I enjoy classic literature. I enjoy Walter Isaacson. I've just where I'm sitting right now as we do this, I can look over and see some of his volumes on Einstein and Franklin and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And he has a new book, I think, out of Galileo. And uh, I would say if anybody in the audience is going over to Florence, Italy. There's a museum uh, on Galileo, and if you're interested in science at all, that's very worthwhile your time. And of course, Florence is not a bad place to go to either. <laughs> Absolutely. So I will include all of these in our show notes so that the audience can uh, find out more about these uh, books here. Uh, jumping into our next section, and this is a rapid fire round, Jeff, and this is where I'm going to ask you a bunch of fun questions. Uh, just whatever the first response that comes to your mind. And so my first question to you is, are you ready? 
Yeah, I guess. All yeah. right. Okay. So the first question is, who's your favorite music band? I would say there were several growing up, Heart, uh, and the Beatles were probably my two favorite bands. Right now, I've got much more eclectic test, uh, tastes. I love uh, Spanish guitar, flamenco, uh, classical music, Mozart, Bach. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a variety of different music types I like. Great. Whose brain would you like to pick? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say a couple. Einstein would be an obvious one. Uh, when we were in Switzerland, we stood outside the apartment that he had, and uh, I was just fascinated. I've enjoyed reading a lot because he was not only an outstanding scientist, he was also uh, a deep humanitarian. Uh, there have been theologians uh, of really all faith traditions that I've enjoyed uh, reading. Uh, Dun, John Dunn Scotus is one of those. Uh, Thomas Merton, uh, for anybody that has a contemplative bent, uh, I'm a very uh, avid student, if you will, of Thomas Merton as well. Oh, that's uh, good to know. And then uh, what color describes you best? Purple. Mm. Was in part because I'm a University of Washington grad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. no, I love that uh, color. I, I think one of the most powerful moments that I've had scuba diving, and I've mentioned a couple of those, we were off Cayman Island, Grand Cayman. There's the Cayman Trench there, and you look down, and it descends a couple of thousand feet. At that point, it descends much farther. And there's this deepening of blue from azure blue to cobalt to almost midnight, and it's there's this rapture, and I just love that color. That always speaks to me and brings back uh, the times that I've spent scuba diving or sailing. Well, that's great. Yeah, it reminds me of my trip to Jamaica a couple of years ago, and I had a chance to do some snorkeling in the middle of the ocean, and it was just beautiful, the amazing, uh, pristine colors that you get to see, and uh, the fish, it just is mind-boggling. Yes. And, uh, the next question for you is, what is the greatest work of art, in your opinion? Oh, uh, there are so many. Having been uh, blessed to be in Italy, uh, I would say David is absolutely incredible. Pieta is absolutely striking. Uh, we were in Spain last year, and seeing some of the artwork of Goya and some of the others... Uh, those were absolutely incredible. And my wife and I are hoping to go to France this next year and go to the Louvre. And uh, so I'm hoping to see some of those. But I would say the one that really stopped me in my tracks was probably uh, David. Uh, that was that was an incredible piece. Just seeing how lifelike it is. If all of a sudden, you know, the statue turned to a human and spoke to you, the skill in creating that was just incredible. Mm. That's beautifully said. The next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? Well, I've been blessed. Um, I would say the landing on the moon. I would have loved to have been in Apollo and uh, been there with Neil Armstrong and sat down on the moon. Uh, that's great. And then uh, the next question is, if you could ask God one question, what would that be? What do you want me to do and be? Uh, that's uh, I like that. And then uh, the final question within the rapid fire round, if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, Jeff, what would that be? Oh, that's a tough one, Kel. But I would, if with rapid fire, uh, I would say see yourself and others and treat them accordingly. Oh, that's great. 
treat them the way they would like to be treated. And that's awesome. And then moving on to our final section here, and that is I've just got three more questions for you, Jeff. And the first one is, what is your current personal or business passion project? Uh, and what are you looking forward to in the next six months or to a year from now? Well, I think I'm looking to expand uh, the presentation uh, presentation that I do, transforming stressors and burnout into confident performances and resilient relationships. Because having worked in the corporate world, especially in the high-stress industries of uh, broadcasting, uh, television news, and also aviation, I know how prevalent that is and how uh, – Giving in or being hampered by stressors and fear and uh, anger uh, not only diminish what you are capable of and the gifts that you're capable of expressing, but also that has a ripple effect, if you will, on others. Uh, If you're not your best, others can't be their best because they can't draw the gifts from you. And I think the strategies that I have found have worked, whether it was prepping for an interview at the White House, uh, dealing with... uh, Mount St. Helens or an orca uh, have applications. And these conditions, these situations aren't unique to me. They may have different faces. They may have different places for others. But I think some of those same strategies can help others as well. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity to make that more widely available. No, that's so great. And then you also are working on a TV show, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, could you share a little bit more about that? Yes, I serve on a board of an organization called the Tracy Levine Center, and that is our basic uh, motto, if you will, is building bridges uh, between different faith groups and of seeing uh, others with compassionate eyes. And so this TV program, which we call Challenge 2.0, there was a version of this that aired in the 60s and 70s, is basically looking at contemporary issues through the lens of faith. And when we say lens of faith, we've had all sorts of people on the program, and we're anticipating that even more. Uh, we've had people from various aspects of Christianity, uh, from Judaism, from Islam, from uh, the Sikh faith, from uh, Hinduism, and we're looking at continuing to expand that. And I think as people have been, what shall I say, disaffected by the uh, manifestation of religion in the organizational aspect, there are a lot of others out there that don't Uh, actually belong to a faith community. And we're drawing in people from journalism, academia, and others that are just have very valuable perspectives in looking at some of these issues. Uh, We have one that's airing as you and I are doing this tomorrow that's on gratitude. And uh, we're going to be doing several others on some key topics. But uh, uh, people, obviously, they might not be in broadcast reach to see this talk program, but it's available through the Tracy Levine website at tracylevine.org. And that's T-R, I should mention, Cal, that's T-R-E-A-C-Y-L-E-V-I-N-E.org. Great, and then we'll include that in our show notes here. And uh, and then uh, a perfect segue into our next question about gratitude. So what are three things you're grateful for in life? I think I'm uh, grateful for uh, my family, my wife in particular. We've helped each other grow. I'm grateful for uh, my faith, and I'm certainly grateful for all those encounters, positive, negative, otherwise, that have helped me grow. Uh, Because those are, you know, the, the positive experiences, those are wonderful, and you can grow from those. But it's very often when your nose gets rubbed in something through a negative experience, be it the loss of a job, I've had that. Uh and the loss of friends, 
uh, uh, through death or otherwise that I think really lead you to grow and become more the person that we're intended to be. No, it's, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I would like to take a moment here to acknowledge you, Jeff, for a few things. Uh, one is, you know, you, we started our conversation about your favorite quotation, and one of the things you mentioned was, every day is a new adventure. And you have lived your life really as an adventurous soul. And then the other thing that I find really remarkable is your professionalism in terms of your commitment to your craft. You have always been uh, looking up to role models in your industry, in your field, and have diligently practiced, uh, you know, taking your skills and your craft to the next level as is evidenced by your amazing accomplishments. Uh, And then the other thing is, also, the fact that you are a very generous and giving person, your contribution to the community, to uh, the society through your work uh, is really very inspiring. And finally, uh, if I may say, if, uh, you know, some of the role models that you mentioned, Jack Cousteau, and, uh, you know, if they, if I had to ask them a question that, you know, what do you think of Jeff's career, they would be all be proud <laughs> of what you've accomplished and what you've done for your life. And you're truly a role model for all of us. We can learn a lot from you and Jeff so thank you for doing what you're doing Jeff well thank you Cal and I think one of the things that makes us better is a community we're a part of and you're definitely a part of that as well so I would reflect that right back to you thank you appreciate that and then final question and this is how we wrap up all our interviews and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends well I think uh, we grow by encountering other people I think the shortest distance uh between a person's head and their heart is through encounters, through stories, through other people's life stories. And they're getting that with your program. And I think they cannot help but grow. They cannot help but be transformed. And hopefully this program may be helped a little bit, but certainly the range of uh, conversations you've had will definitely provide that. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback and uh, enjoyed our conversation today. And for everybody listening, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This has been a 7 Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.